0: I have got a new date for you today because if I've learned something about the women in my life is that they like dates. So 538 BC, all right? 538 BC, I know the humanity of it all. We have to learn two dates, but I believe in you. 538 BC, this is the date for Israel when they thought hope was reborn. Now, if you've been with us for uh, uh, the last several weeks at all, we've been making a big deal of another date, 587 BC. Now, 587 BC was a date for Israel that everything changed. See, there was this nation called Babylon, and they came in and they invaded Judah, the last little stronghold or holdout of the once great nation of Israel. This, this, this nation called Babylon comes in, they invade Judah, they lay siege to Jerusalem, they tear it down, they kill the king, they burn the temple to the ground, and they send all the people in the land out into exile which means they say, you can't live here anymore. You're coming as our slaves. You're coming with us into this far off land sent out of the land. Now, 587 BC. I mean, it was like the gut shot beyond belief. Everything that Israel planted their feet on, everything that they found their hope in was taken away, cut out from under them at the knees. And on that date, everything for Israel changed. And we come to this date. And this was the date that it looked like maybe, just maybe, for the people of Israel, everything they hoped for, everything they longed for, it looked like the day that the hope they had was finally going to come to pass. Let me explain what happened. A new world power comes on the scene. This time it's Persia, and Persia overthrows Babylon because the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Persia comes, and they overthrow Babylon, and they take a much more lenient and tolerant view towards their conquered people. They tell Israel, you can go back to the land. You were scattered, you were forced out, you can go back. And you know that temple you love so much, you can rebuild it. Not only that, here's some money. Get the project going. And in 538 BC, when this happened, it looked like for Israel that fortunes were reversing. Hope was reborn. Everything that they longed for was coming to pass. I'll show you this this morning. I just want to show you how one prophet kind of thought about this day, how how they thought about it with such hope. This comes from Isaiah looking forward towards this date. And this is what he says. This is what Yahweh says of Cyrus. Who's Cyrus? The king of Persia. This is what Yahweh says of the king of Persia. He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. Built And and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what Yahweh says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of. Now, don't, don't fast forward past this too quickly. Do you see that last line? Do you know what the word in Hebrew is that gets translated anointed? Mashiach. What does that sound like to you? Messiah. This is what Yahweh says to his Messiah, Cyrus. This pagan Persian king is called the Messiah. That's how much hope was placed in this day that our salvation and deliverance and rescue, and all that God has promised us has finally come to pass. Now, I got a question for you. You ever get your hopes up? You get your hopes up for something you dare to hope again, only for it to go unrealized. You come through a period or through a trial or whatever it is, and you dare to risk again. You dare to hope And you think it's there, and your hopes get up to here, only to have them cut out from under your feet. Because if you know what I'm talking about, that's actually what 538 BC was about. It was a date that Israel got their hopes up again, where they thought it was coming to pass, only for it to go unrealized, and for hope to be lost again. And that's what we're going to talk about today those times when hope goes unrealized. We're going to look at how ancient Israel came to terms with 538 B.C., and my hope is that for those of us who find ourselves in a very similar place, that we'll learn how to come to terms with it ourselves. So let's jump in. Now, in this date, they went back, right? And here's what happens Cyrus sends them off and he says, You can go back into the land if you want. He gives the edict, and some of them take him up on it. The return from exile begins, and within 20 years, the temple is rebuilt. Now, remember, the significance of the temple in ancient Israel is so much more than a building, because a temple was where a god lived. You wanted to find God, you went to a temple. And if you wanted to find the God, Yahweh, you went to the temple. And I'm not just talking in some kind of like, God is everywhere kind of way. No, I mean super concentrate. God was there. And they go back and they rebuild this temple and they reinstitute the priesthood and they start doing the sacrifices and they start doing everything right. They start playing it by the book. You know what I mean? And the problem is, God wasn't there. They do everything right, but God never shows up. Let me explain this to you. Uh, Now, what I want to do is I want to read a description to you of what Happened at that first temple, the, the tabernacle, um, basically, that tent in the Israelite wanderings. Listen to this. It says, after they finished building this thing, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Now, the cloud covered it. What cloud? Like it was foggy? No, it was like that cloud that had come down on Sinai, that cloud that had come down where God met with Moses, that cloud that led them through the Red Sea, that cloud where God had like been so manifestly present throughout all of Israel's history up to this point. It says that cloud, it covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't even enter it Because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory filled it. And in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they'd follow it and set out. But if the cloud didn't lift, they they didn't set out until it was lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, During all their travels. Now, think about this: What would it do to your faith if you could tangibly see God? No, you ever ask that question? Where is God in this? What if you could go there? He is, and you can see His manifestation in His presence. This cloud, this weight, this covering, and a light show in it at night. Going there is something weird about that cloud over there, right? What would that do to your hope, your faith, your confidence if you could see God, have him tangibly present in that kind of way? And what the prophets will record is that just before 587 B.C. came to pass, just before that time of exile, this prophet named Ezekiel, he starts getting a vision, and it's a vision of God leaving the temple. God has left the building. All right, leaving it nothing but an empty shell and right on its heels, Israel's laid waste. But now it's 538 and we're back in the land and the temple can be rebuilt. What is this going to mean? And they get the structure up, they get the priesthood going, they get the sacrifices going, but the cloud has not returned because God has still vacated the building. It's like Israel comes back from exile and they're doing all the right stuff, but the substance isn't there. And it's like a veneer. And this is the key point. This is the key point of it all, and this is the key point of 538. Even though Israel comes back to the land, Israel is is still in exile. Even though Israel has come back, God is still not there. And it's in this time that you see these prophets start to wrestle with this. They start to to wrestle with this, to try to come to terms with, what does this mean that, that we're back and everything that we've hoped for should be like But it's not. This is what like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, you know, those guys at the back of the book. Um, That's what these guys are all about. Let me just show you something in their writings, a theme that goes through. and, And just pay attention to the timing in all of this. Here's Haggai, all right? Look at what Haggai says. The temple's rebuilt. They're back doing their thing. But what does Yahweh Almighty say? Wait, in a little while. I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations, and, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will do what? I will. You see that? I will fill this house with glory. If he's going to fill it, what does it imply about it now? That God has left the building. What about Zechariah? Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. It's kind of like, you guys remember the glory days? You remember old Jerusalem? (laughs) This new one? Man, the old one got nothing on what's gonna come. It'll be without walls because of the great number. It won't even be able to hold all the people. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it. And I will be its glory within. Are you hearing that, that, that tabernacle language, that... That that tent language, that that temple language of how God dwelled. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion. Why? For I am coming. And I will live among you. Which implies what about them now? That he's not yet there among them. Because God He's left the building. Malachi's my favorite in this because he's writing to the priests specifically in the midst of it. And like the priests themselves are like in this, you know, they're doing their thing. They're like, this is so lame. This is so lame. It's like, you know, our grandparents told us the glory days, like when God was like palpably there. The cloud was over and like, here we are. And we're like offering the sacrifices and this thing that's like a shadow of what it once was. And there's no cloud. There's no fire. This is so stupid. Why are we even doing this? And this is what Malachi writes to them. He goes, hey guys, look, wait, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple because he ain't there yet. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come. So priests, don't be caught with your pants down. Don't be caught unaware because when he comes, who can endure that day? Who can stand when he appears? Be ready because God may not be here yet. But all these prophets are going, the day's going to come when God's going to return. Now, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all of them have something in common and that all of them write in the time when that second temple is rebuilt. But did you see something in common between all three with when the timing of things, the timing of hope will come to pass? Now our future. Now? Nah. It's something yet to come. Now, rivet that in, okay? Keep that in mind. Because what I want to do is, I want to talk to those of you here today who are disappointed with God. I have so many conversations with people who are disappointed with God. Who've dared to hope, some for the first time, some maybe again, who who have just kind of put themselves on the line emotionally and said, I'm going to risk hoping and believing. And then it doesn't come through. You know what I mean? When hope isn't realized, you know, some of you, maybe it's acute. You can pinpoint a catastrophic event in your life, something big that you had to endure, and kind of like the exile for Israel. I mean, it changed everything in how you view God. For others of you, though, I bet it's more chronic. The slow accumulation of a bunch of small and moderate size disappointments, praying for something that 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 didn't come to pass, or or having to endure something, some kind of suffering or evil that God didn't deliver you from, that he allowed to happen to you, and it's resulted in this fundamental disappointment. And I, guys, I got to tell you, if you are in that company today, one, it's okay. Two, you're not alone. But three, oftentimes when I hear that, it, it i got to be honest, it catches me by surprise a little bit. And it's not because I'm naive to the struggle. It's not because I haven't been there in my own ways or that um, I'm out of touch with what's going on. Um, No, do you ever have those moments in life where you feel like you're talking past each other? Because what often happens in the midst of those discussions for me is I realize something in the people who who are are sharing with me. And if this is true to you, I just want to, again, say this is okay. But, But hear this. What I realize is that oftentimes when people are disappointed with God, it's because they had an expectation or an assumption that God would deliver them now. As in though our hope in God Is for today. Our hope in God is not really for today. For the Jews and for the ancient Christians, they didn't see God as one to give me my best life now. Their hope was not now, it was in the future. Question for you, if you're here and, and you're in the midst of this kind of struggle and wondering and disappointment, and, and, and do you have an assumption that God's deliverance is for you now? Because how you look at that, the perspective you take, it really makes all the difference. Because guys, i got to break it to you. Our salvation is not now. It's yet to come. The fullness of God's promise, his hope, his deliverance, what the Bible calls salvation is something future that is yet to come. Oh, it's, it, it's come in to a degree, to be sure. Don't hear me wrong. I mean, with Jesus, there has been a shift in all of this. But the shift is more like shock troops coming onto a battlefield than the war actually being won. And God, to to be sure, gives a measure of his spirit today, and with that, a measure of strength and wisdom and power to endure, and even occasional of victory and miracle. But don't make mistake, the primary hope is in a future yet to come. This is why the ancient Christians would pray this, come Lord Jesus, is your hope for now or your expectation of God for something to come? I mean, I think of the last words in the Bible. The last words of anything, right? You always remember them. Here they are. Very last words. Yes, I am coming soon, Jesus says. And what do they reply? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Because what they discovered, and what I think we often need to be reminded of, is our hope is something yet to come. So if you're here, you know, and you are struggling with this, you are disappointed with God, you you are in the midst of this, and and, and you're crying out, and and you're wondering, and you're perplexed, and, and you're feeling like you've been betrayed by him, I want to encourage you to do something. Shift your prayer. Shift your prayer. Shift your prayer from, God, where are you now? To, yes, Lord Jesus, come. Because if I've come to learn anything about God, it's that He's faithful. And when He says He's going to do something, He's going to do it. Which means when He says He's going to come, it's going to come to pass. I think of how Jesus taught His own disciples to pray, right? Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the meantime, while we wait, give give me today what I need. Give me today what I need as I wait. My daily bread, what I need today. To stay faithful, to hang in there, to not lose hope until the future comes, because it's then, not here, where hope really is. So I know maybe we should just pray it then, uh, especially those of you here that, that are struggling with the shift. Um, I want to invite you to rise, and maybe we should just pray it, pray what Jesus prayed. If Jesus told his disciples to look towards what's to come, maybe we should too, and for those of you who are struggling and disappointed and perplexed, take heart in the core of what the second coming is all about. The day when all hope, all promises, all of it comes to pass let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today, God, our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I just invite you to stay in the time of prayer for a minute. Lord, let your kingdom come. May we not lose sight of what we're supposed to be looking forward to. Let your kingdom come. May it not delay. May we, may we yearn for it and a hunger for it. May we not be so blindsided by now that we forget the future promise in store. Let your kingdom come. May it come soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come, and let your will on this earth finally be done. Let your will here be done just as it's done in heaven. May earth be a reflection of your throne room because it ain't. It ain't. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Deliver us, save us, rescue us. Set all things right again. And Lord, in the meantime, we wait. We pray for miracles. May they break through, but we wait. And often that means enduring suffering. So give us what we need. Give us today what we need today to endure. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us, God, for doubting you, for writing you off, for rejecting you. Forgive us for confusing you and your promises because we don't read, because we don't come to terms, because we don't step beyond the things we face in the moment. And God, they're they're rough. So give us what we need to not lose heart, to not lose hope. Protect us, God, from the things that are going to drag us down. Lead us not into that which will turn our hearts astray. And we pray it, God, mightily because we need to Deliver us. Deliver us from evil and the evil one. Protect us from him. Shield us until the day of your return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Your kingdom, your power, your glory may it fill the earth as it filled the temple. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Make this our heart song. Make this our battle cry. Make this our mantra. Make this the cry of our heart.